Welcome back. This is the eighth episode of AIR, an interview podcast series with a different theme each episode. Joining me today to talk about jazz, spontaneity, and freedom of expression is DJ and Interdimensional Transmissions co-founder, Erica. joining me. So I guess that jazz is a bit of a difficult genre to define because it spans such a huge time period and encompasses kind of all these different iterations. So what does the term jazz mean to you? How do you define it? Yeah, so for me, jazz is a lot about freedom, you know, because like you say, it's about so many different time periods and so many different artists. And for me, some of the most interesting you know, some of the most interesting artists or some of the most standout parts of it are when people are being free and being improvisational and there's freedom within the way each individual person is playing or what their role is in the group. And yet somehow it forms this like cohesive whole. So it's about all these like disparate parts coming together. So do you think it's fair to say that electronic music also kind of inhabits this space of being hard to pin down because of its different subgenres? And I mean, it's not quite such a doesn't span quite as many decades, but I think it's there's something to be said about the kind of uncapturableness of music. Sure. Well, I mean, I feel like when you call what like electron, like what music isn't electronic, mm. right? Anymore. I mean, like as soon as you started recording, it became electronic in some way. So it's like electronic music. It could mean rock or pop, or it could mean jazz, or it could mean any of these other things, right? I mean, we had like, you know keyboard players in jazz bands like since keyboards were new because these people are experimenting and they want to use new instruments new instruments so i feel like it's it's a, it's similar but it's different because i think that electronic isn't the genre it's the instrumentation or the technique <laughs> and so in terms of jazz uh in terms of the sound how would you define that like does the freedom that you mentioned does that come into the sound at all for it's yeah for sure for sure like and I get really into a lot of the sort of more experimental electronic records where people are you know playing with oscillators or getting into textural things or you know coming up with the new ways of generating sound like that's extremely extremely interesting to me and I mean you can go really like straight and pop with it and then maybe it's a little bit less about being experimental because you know there's very structured side of it right does this kind of experimental quality that you were talking about, do you think that that is central to jazz in some way? Yeah. I mean, I feel like jazz is exploratory, right? And that a lot of electronic artists are exploratory as well. So when asked to narrow the scope of what jazz really is, Duke Ellington famously said, it's all music. Is that something that resonates with you? <laughs> That's something that resonates with me both for jazz and for electronic, actually. In what ways? 
um, <laughs> because music is everything <laughs> and it's, I mean, jazz is everything and electronic music is all around us. <laughs> I mean, you, electronic music is even in like pinball machines, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the texture, it's part of the texture of like everyday life, like walking around, everything makes a sound like your dishwasher sings to you now. Like, mm-hmm. and I guess that's something that people, I mean, I don't know, I'm thinking of like pop culture references where people like talk about you know the garbage truck making a kind of jazz sound yeah, or like right. all the different city sounds kind of making a, mm-hmm. a jazz sound um is there a connection between Detroit and jazz in the same way that there's a connection between Detroit and techno yeah for sure I mean there were t- there are so <laughs> Detroit has such a rich history for jazz and for for, for performance and mm-hmm. so many musicians lived in Detroit for periods of time like Detroit is a huge jazz history and mm-hmm. I mean still has active jazz clubs of course and so there's a live jazz scene in Detroit. Yep. Okay. There cool. sure is. <laughs> so what is that like? I mean, have you been? Are you? I go to shows it, sometimes. Yeah. yeah. You know, then, you know, sometimes there's, you know, bigger acts that are traveling and coming through, right? But like, you know, the cooler part is like, oh god, my brain cells. <laughs> Trying to think of the name of the place that I'm thinking of. <laughs> this is the thing I'm the worst at. Something has a name and I totally <laughs> forgot it again. <laughs> but there's a couple spots. Uh, where you can just go see local bands and local players and that's that's the coolest and the other thing about Detroit is you never know if like the person who's working at the bar or who's working at you know wherever you are like might very well be a really talented musician because there's so many people around the city that were Motown session musicians mm-hmm. or were involved in playing in bands or still are or whatever it's like it's an incredibly rich musical heritage in Detroit and jazz is a huge part of that so can you tell me a bit about uh, an experience that, you, that you've had listening to live jazz at home? Uh, where was it? Who was it? And how was that experience different than listening to a record at home, for example? Yeah, sure. So I don't know. Maybe, I'm trying to remember when it was. It was a while ago, like maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Um, David S. Ware Quartet came through and played at Alvin's in Detroit when Alvin's was a thing. I don't, it doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> um, and I think the drummer at that time was Susie Abara, and she was playing drums in a way that I'd never seen anybody play drums before. She had, you know, she had brushes out and she was playing textures on the drums and contributing this whole layer of textural, like live texture to the saxophone playing of David Esware. That was just like really amazing to feel, you know, and that's the difference between going to see a band like that live where you're the the sound is so huge and you can you can feel it and you see them playing and you get that vibe off of it that's like the difference between sitting at home and listening to records which Mm. I mean I love laying down on the floor and (laughs) listening to records really loud but so I guess the jazz scene would you say that it's I don't know still like still super active is it still something that brings in a lot of tourism a lot of people is that like a quite a big thing not really I mean jazz isn't really a thing that people make money at you Mm. can't be like you know, a young saxophonist and like the, <laughs> jazz is not economically viable, yeah. like anywhere really, yeah. like particularly, which is unfortunate, but true. Um, it used to be a much bigger thing, but I think that's, I mean, our culture has changed so much. It's like everybody's consuming things in their house and people aren't going to clubs anymore mm-hmm. and people aren't going out. You know, people don't have to go out to connect with other people anymore. You know, every small city or medium-sized city being a place with a club where a band's going to play and people going to see that band and have that experience as a community, like, that's just not a thing that we do anymore. I mean, is that disappointing <laughs> to you as an artist or as a consumer of jazz music? 
Well, I mean, as a consumer of anything or like as someone who enjoys a cultural experience, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, when you when you read about like, you know, how jazz and blues musicians would like be touring constantly and like have their own train cars to like get around in this kind of thing. It's just like, wow, like, different time, different time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so what was your first awareness of jazz? Do you remember the record or the artist? Um, I don't remember the record or the artist, but um, when I went to university in Ann Arbor, I joined the college radio station, WCBN-FM, and they had, that station had been, you know, receiving and collecting records for decades and decades, so, and jazz is, because it's a more mature music form, it's not one that, like, kids are trying to thieve, you know, so, like, kids coming through the station weren't, you know stealing all these really amazing records yet you know they would steal the r&b and the hip-hop and like the cool rock records and whatever but they weren't stealing jazz um so the jazz collection at the station was huge and i would go down and do radio shows and just start you know you'd find a record and listen to it and while that sounds cool look on it see who the players are and then look through the stacks for records by those players so that or you know oh this is a hat hut record so i'm gonna go look for all the other hat hut records i can find and so there's like all these ways that you can trace through the printed records and like you know listen through different decades and different styles and you know different labels and different musicians so I mean I spent years doing that and for a while I did a um, jazz till noon radio show Mm -hmm. Um, there's still some recordings I don't know if you saw those I didn't see them but I would love to hear there's some on my SoundCloud (laughs) from like 2005 or something amazing you mentioned some artist names maybe you can tell me a bit more about who you were listening to maybe there was a favorite favorite artist that you like to play on your show so much exploration and so here we are with like nouns again and me being like what are things called I don't know (laughs) but you know I particularly always loved Hat Hut records they came almost we called them pizza boxes because they were these big it wasn't really gatefold but it would actually fold out in all four directions and there'd be the stack of records on the inside and then printing on all four sides and I loved those they were some of the weirdest ones um and I mean, of course, you know, that's how I got to Sun Ra, and that's how I got to, you know, Sonny Rollins and Duke Ellington, everything. All the different kinds of jazz I could get to through those stacks. And I would look at things and write it down and promptly forget what it's called because my poor sad <laughs> brain like, does not deal with proper nouns. <laughs> but so were you big into music before the show or was it just something you kind of happened upon and got into or like what was your history with that? I always knew I wanted to be a radio DJ so when I got to university that was like I moved into the dorm on day one and on day two I joined the radio (laughs) station and then maybe I registered for classes sometime after that I'm not sure but like (laughs) that was like a huge thing I mean I loved listening to music when and I loved listening to the radio specifically and I would listen to the weird overnight radio shows and stuff um but I only, you know, when I was in high school, I was listening to, you know, modern rock at the time and like goth and new wave and stuff, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, joining the station, they were like, well, it's a freeform station. You can't just like that play that kind of music. You have to play all the kinds of music. So your job when you're making your demo tape is to go pick things from all different parts and start learning about music. So that station and like the overall like aesthetic of that station and their kind of like theory really pushed me to explore more, you know? So it was from there that I got really into not just jazz, but I also started listening to like, you know, different kinds of like percussive music and world music and like Mm -hmm. all the different kinds of rock and experimental music and just like all kinds of just everything was there. I would spend hours down there overnight and just like, oh, I'm going to sign up for like, 
you know, oh, it's in between semester breaks. There's like 12 hours of radio available. Cool. I'll sign up from like midnight to 8 a.m. So do you remember the first jazz record that really kind of spoke to you uh, or made you feel differently about music in general or about jazz in general? I don't remember a specific record. (laughs) (laughs) That memory again. (laughs) Yeah, it's also a very long time ago. I mean, we're talking like 1993 right now. But so, do you feel like you had one of those kind of light bulb moments at a certain point, like when you discovered jazz and you kind of had this moment where it clicked and you knew that this was a a genre that you were going to fall in love with? Yeah, I mean, I guess I kind of really specifically remember Live Evil, <laughs> like the the Miles Davis recording, which is like, and the other one I really remember is um, Cumbia and Jazz Fusion. And I think part of what really struck me about those records is that they're whole album sides. And actually Live Evil really is like, you know, much longer than that, but it had to be cut to 20 minutes or whatever per side because of vinyl, you know, being right. a restrictive <laughs> format, right? But just like even the idea that like, you know, a song or not even a song, but like a concept could play out over a long time period like that was like really striking to me. Were there, I mean, you mentioned that there, that it was kind of a more mature genre. So there wasn't a lot of people kind of fighting for the jazz records, but were other people that you knew also into jazz or were you the odd one out in that respect? That station was full of jazz. And actually at the time that I joined the station five days a week in the morning, they were doing a three hour jazz till noon show. So it was a very strong, you know, experimental and like, like freedom of thought and freedom of ideas is like the backbone of that station at the time. It was very much coming out of like, you know, a seventies perspective. And so there, and the interesting thing about that station is that, yeah, there were kids, of course, plenty of students there, but they're also tied to the community. So there were a lot of older people who maybe had been students 10 or 15 or 20 years ago who were still there providing kind of like guidance and input into what was going on and sort of like helping the younger people get exposed to more things. And the older folks were maybe doing more of the specialty shows, like being more responsible for like the jazz or the blues programming or stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Cool. I mean, I'm, yeah. So it's a really interesting <laughs> place with like a lot of really like cool, really deeply weird individuals, like mm-hmm. which was a great place to be. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, were you a music major or what were you studying? I didn't really know what I was doing there. Um, I did <laughs> eventually graduate, but it took me about ten years. <laughs> uh, can you think of a, I don't know, a favorite song of yours or a favorite artist of yours from? your early days when you were first kind of discovering this genre and what made it so special to you yeah so fuck so, sorry to keep asking no 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 no, no that's memory. totally fair i'm just like <laughs> so i'm just trying to remember like yes charles mingus and okay so charles mingus and alice coltrane were two two people whose records i heard early on that completely blew my mind Cumbian jazz fusion that I mentioned earlier, that's a Charles Mingus record. And the Alice Coltrane record, Journey into Sachidananda, that is epic and beautiful. And I think people have figured that out again because it's been mm-hmm. reissued and yeah, all this I actually lately. Was just like, talking to somebody about this record the other day. It's such a so. beautiful record. Mm-hmm. But so, what is it about that record that is so special to you? I mean, what is it about the sound in particular that speaks to you? It's textural and it's melodic and it's, I mean, transcendental, which, I mean, Sounds like kind of like a hippie thing to say, but it's <laughs> yeah. like just the the way all the tones come together, her instrumentation and the overall vibe of it is really beautiful. And I think that like, I think that the female, like the, the femaleness of it comes through too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely. 
So in what ways did those years spent as a jazz DJ influence or inform who you are as a person? I mean, that's kind of a big question, but <laughs> personally, I think like looking back on my own history with writing and uh, yeah. with journalism in general, I, I really feel like it's influenced uh, the person that I am. Yeah, so. sure. And I mean, I guess I'll say that that overall kind of like 70s freedom thing is like a huge part of like I'm a huge like personal freedom, like free thought kind of person. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, all these ideas about like long form thought and like instrumentation and like layering of ideas and long form thought. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy I enjoy time and like cycles, which are another big part of jazz. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um so in what ways did loving jazz change the way that you thought about music in general? Well, or think about music in general? Well, it's a now. really... Right. I mean, it's a really open thing. So I feel like... Like with all the different ideas that come from jazz and with all the different ways that people play. Um, and the fact that like anything is okay. Not anything, you know, of course. But I mean, <laughs> you, you can have an idea and you can explore that idea. And that, I think, is really important to like any kind of artistry. Do you feel like... Loving jazz taught you something about loving music and making music in, in general? Yeah, for sure. Because, you know, th- back to like being able to explore an idea in a long form. I do this with synthet- with my synthesizers at home. You know, I'll sit around and I'll listen to the same thing for like six hours. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and that might drive anybody else crazy, but they're not there. So it's totally cool. <laughs> So, yeah, I was going to say, would you say that that's something that's still present in terms of your approach to music today? But mm-hmm. obviously it is. Yeah. And, you know, it's like I'm making, you know, sometimes I'm making like music with drum machines. It's like more, you know, for a dance floor, for listening to in your car or whatever, you know. But then some of what I'm making is way more textural and more open and not for that kind of environment. Mm-hmm. It's like lay on the carpet music. Is that, I mean, I think <laughs> I feel like maybe that's like more fun to make. I mean, I don't know because I don't make music, but I think I, I feel like it probably could be more fun to make this kind of like weird lying on the floor type of music. Yeah, it's really fun. It's a totally different kind of experiment. So it's like I really like doing that, too, actually. And I um, I did a live sh- I did a live performance at, the, at this private event in Colorado earlier this year where I decided I was just going to like do a bunch of live kind of like ambient synthesizer music and explore textures slow melodies and stuff and it was a really fun thing to do so it's like outside and the trees with this really organic vibe i mean i think that ambient sets are so underrated like it's one of my favorite things to listen to a like a live ambient set because i think it's more challenging for the dj actually than a dance floor set personally um so did you have a, I, we talked about this kind of light bulb moment, did you have a light bulb moment when you heard electronic music for the first time, or you heard techno for the first time, for example? When I heard Drexia for the first time, I had, <laughs> I specifically, I had a light bulb moment. moment. <laughs> <laughs> when, when Drexia 4 was new and I got my hands on that record, I listened to it about 6,000 times. <laughs> Do you still listen to it? Yes, it's still one of my favorite records of all time. <laughs> was there a difference between that moment of hearing Drexia for the first time and getting into jazz for the first time like was that light bulb moment different in some way I think jazz was like more of a slow burn you know like it's something that like slowly like kind of infiltrated my thought processes and like what I cared about Mm. um and also it's it's like a wider thing to get to know I feel like electronic music especially then in the early 90s was like much more limited and more direct it was a new Mm. form of music you know like especially if you talk about techno I mean if you take like you know the 
experimental music that people were doing in the 70s kind of like out of it and just like talk about techno for a minute like it was pretty new at that time so it wasn't like all of this back history exploration to get into you know and like people weren't putting experimental music into the same bucket as electronic music mm-hmm. with my air quotes like <laughs> like like how people talk about it now like they weren't really connected in the same way so the station the radio station actually had a techno section that had a handful of records in it um but there was also this experimental section that had just like all this weird 70s and 80s shit that people were making you know like weird synthesizer music electroacoustic or whatever and you know i think that now we see those things as being connected but then they were like separate universes and that kind of experimental section was more kind of tied into the jazz section because the jet you know like really experimental or free jazz is like more tightly connected to that but there is still, you know, some resistance against electronic instrumentation mm-hmm. from like the pure band people, right? right? You know, someone like Sun Rasher, he can play keyboards, but like you can't have a drum machine because that's not really music anymore or something, right? right? So it's like <laughs> I mean, was that frustrating at the time that people were not I don't know, not being as uh, open or receptive to electronic music? Or was it something that you didn't even really... Well, it was just kind of weird, right? Because here's all these, like, really open-minded people who are, like, a 70s version of hippie conservative (laughs) about, you know, things changing. Mm -hmm. So that was, like, a little bit awkward for a while. And, I mean, of course, everybody figured out that, like... <laughs> music is <Not> good, so <laughs> bad. you know, but <laughs> it took a minute. So, in what ways do you think that jazz informs electronic music, both in a technical sense and in a more kind of metaphorical sense, if you will? Um, so, I think that techno picks up a lot of, um, you know, ideas about texture, right? And also a lot of ideas about dissonance and stuff that jazz has. Um, but I think that, you know, techno just purely as techno is much more structured than like jazz ever should be or ever was i mean there's the dance aspect part of it people were having like swing raves you know (laughs) you know in the 40s and 30s and whatever right and i mean people have always been dancing and jazz is what america and the world was dancing to for you know big band and all this right i mean there's that kind of continuity of it um it's just a very different way of articulating that you know Mm. or of getting to that place so what about in a songwriting capacity for you personally, does the kind of free form nature of jazz have an effect on the kind of music that you produce or the way that you approach making music? Um, gosh, that's a great question. Um, I don't know. Maybe you, you also yeah. didn't make jazz, so maybe it doesn't. Yeah. Really... Like, I mean, I never studied music and I never made jazz, but it's like I've, you know, I explore and that's what I enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. So it's like I sit around my house with my machines and just like listen to things and try stuff and have ideas. And it's like not necessarily always because I'm trying to record or make a song, but I just like that exploration, you know. So I'll sit around for hours and like play with sound. I imagine that that's what people were doing. You know, if you listen to the way, you know, how many different sounds can an amazing player get out of a saxophone, you know, or, you know, how many different ways are to play a drum, like whatever your instrument is, that there's like this, like, you know, like an approach of experimenting with sound. So what does freedom mean when it comes to electronic music or when it comes to making music in general? It just means that like freedom is like about trying and having ideas and like deleting them when you don't like them. <laughs> it's like like freedom is being allowed to fail and being able to do things that you don't like and going on to the next thing. And I mean, do you think that the music that you make allows you a lot of that? Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, I you know, like I just finished an album and that you know 
10 of those, the 10 tracks that made it to that album. There was like a lot of other things that didn't, you know, there's like a lot of ideas that I worked through, you know, or that weren't, that I didn't like when I heard them the second time or the third time or whatever. Right. So there's definitely that. I think another part of the freedom thing is just like in exploring like a song as it happens. For me, it's like, I most like a lot of when I'm writing, it's for live. And then when I'm playing live, I'm just sort of like the, I'm, like I have a collection of ideas and sequences, but like the way that they're put together is just like in the moment, you know? So it's like improvisational arrangement kind of. And that is like a form of freedom too, of like not having like a preset structure to what you're doing, but like having the freedom to like explore the structure and like create the structure on the fly. Mm, So you don't sit down with like this idea, I'm going to make this type of track or I'm going to do this particular thing and then you do it or... You You know, I mean, sometimes I'm like, I want to make a drum machine jam or I don't Mm -hmm. want to make a drum machine jam. I mean, there's like choices about instrumentation, you know, like sometimes I sit down and I'm like, I would just want to make a bunch of ambient music right now. Just want to listen to that oscillator for a while, you know, (laughs) and like see what happens. (laughs) I think for some people, jazz can be a bit of a challenging listen because I think some people, for some people, I think it's like kind of hard to follow and... Uh, it's just a bit challenging to kind of make sense of. Um, is that tension something that interests you where your own productions are concerned, making music that's a bit more challenging? I don't know that I'm, like, trying to be challenging ever. I mean, I enjoy dissonance, you know, and I enjoy, like, you know, odd note combinations and stuff like that, but I'm also, you know, I'm not trying to, like... I'm not trying to be, like... I don't know. I don't know what the right word is. Challenging for challenging. Right. For the sake of being challenging. You know, if I like the way something sounds, that's like really what I care about. (laughs) What do you mean by dissonance? Um, I mean like, um, like note combinations that make you feel awkward or like, you know, lots of layers of sound that are like maybe scary or punchy or creepy Mm. or, you know, cause there's like all, you know, so I think that like if, when people are only listening to, to music on the radio, that that music is all like engineered to like manipulate your emotions in a really specific mm-hmm. way, right? So I think that what can turn people off, especially about free jazz, is the fact that it's just like so open and it's like inviting you to like have a different kind of emotion or to like feel a different thing or you know it evokes a different kind of experience and that will make people uncomfortable because they're not you know they want that comfort zone of the mm-hmm, structure mm-hmm. of the pop song that they understand already. Yeah, there's this <laughs> term, the millennial whoop, and it's like this. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of this. It's like this certain I don't know vocal little chorus type of thing that comes up in all these pop songs and apparently <laughs> artists include it because it sounds really familiar to you when you hear it so you automatically kind of engage more with that song or kind of feels feel something towards it because you feel like you've heard it before because right. it's in every other pop song kind right. of thing so it's interesting that you say that right well and that's what advertising is too mm-hmm. i mean advertising is taking like really tired social cues and like re-engineering mm-hmm. them until like it's punching a hole in your brain that's what pop music is too i mean it's like engineered and produced more than it is written by an artist the artists i like what you said about making sounds that make you feel awkward i was interviewing laurel halo uh recently and she told me the same thing that she <laughs> likes to make sounds that make her laugh or that uh, make her feel weird and she knows yeah. that she's done something right when she kind of laughs at her own work. Yeah. <laughs> um, is that something that you seek out with the music that you like to hear in a live setting or the, the artists that you listen to? Is it like, does it always have to be something that's challenging in a way or is it enough to have music for entertainment's value? 
I guess. Well, I guess, like, you know, if, I guess if I stop and think about it, I never really listen to music that's, like, happy for happy's sake or, yeah. like, trying to make me feel like, you know, or, like, the playing of that joy chord, you know, mm-hmm. like... Novelty house, I would yeah, say. Yeah, <laughs> it's just, like, I don't like music... I don't like music where, you know, I feel like it's trying to be cheaply manipulative or where I feel like it's just, like, trying to be happy or make people feel happy and stupid mm-hmm. because I don't care about that, you know? So I am more interested in, like layering and texture and like weird emotions and like you know evoking parts of my brain that are just like stranger manipulative is a nice word to use actually i haven't thought about it like that um (laughs) pop music is so manipulative (laughs) and the whoop you just talked about that's a manipulation tactic straight up (laughs) um so what about when you're working with hardware in a live pa setting uh is it fair to say that you're tackling your performance with a kind of jazz mindset (laughs) The arrangement is all improvisational, but I'm working from a collection of things that I know. So it's like I have ideas about songs, you know, beat combinations that go with certain bass lines and that sort of thing. So it's like I'm constructing it based on these coherent ideas that I already have, but like how long are you going to play that piece for? How am I going to synthesize the sound? Am I going to put the effect on it? All that is just kind of like happening in real time. And maybe I'm playing one night and this, you know, song or idea is two minutes long and maybe it's six minutes long the next night because it just feels that way in the room and it's right at the time. You know, the difference between what I'm doing and jazz is that like I'm the band, you know, with an actual jazz band or like a collection of players that are playing together You know, they're not being orchestrated by, like, one person working through it. There's, like, this kind of, like, you know, there's, like, a trade-off of, like, we're going to do this part together, but then an understanding about, like, different people soloing at different times, you know, what the overall structure is. But is there that kind of, I don't know, uh, understanding between you and your machines? Like, I don't know, do you kind of work in that way with them? I mean, we definitely have, like, a two-way relationship. (laughs) We talk. Yeah, I was going to say, I read an interview of of yours where you said that you write music by creating these collections of sequences Mm -hmm. and notches and that work well together so that you can kind of move between them. Can you just tell me a bit more about this kind of like, I don't know, this feeling that you mentioned of how you know when to when to move from one thing to the other. Yeah, it's like sort of hard how I know because it has something to do with the crowd and with what's going on in the room, you know, and if certain things are like hitting or not hitting. And it also has something to do with just like whatever my internal sense of timing is or like if I feel like, oh, I should like let this play longer because I want to, you know, have this have this modulation change take longer. I want to build this thing in a certain way. And what I like about that is that, you know, I'll come up with an idea and play through it different ways in different shows and then if I go to like make a studio version of that or like a final recording for a record or something I have like all these different ways that I've kind of approached it before so I can like you know do it in the studio with understanding so it's kind of just like one giant learning process I guess Mm -hmm. yeah yeah totally (laughs) no it's always learning and that's what's fun about it so what does improvisation mean to you as a performer is it ever possible to really truly improvise in terms of the live sets that you're doing Yeah, sure, because I don't necessarily know what's going to happen next. So that's like what the improvisation is. It's like, am I going to do this part or that part? Or how am I going to transition from this idea into that idea? You know, so I'm like trying to create like some kind of fluidity in it, but without, you know, specific predefined way to get there because then I get bored if every if, if it's like preset too much or if like I'm like oh well if I take that baseline out and put in this other highline like that'll sound good for sure like mm-hmm. I don't care you know so of course sometimes it comes out better than other times because it's not always like 
the same sequence of ideas. So what is the time that it has kind of come together really well? Like you've done something really strange or done something really on the fly that ended up sounding great. It's interesting. I, I played a show at uh, Noc Digital last summer. So 20s, is it 2017? 2016. Yeah. And that one was interesting because I didn't really get a sound check. So I just kind of got a line check and my show is a drum mach- a hardware sequencer, a drum machine, four synthesizers, and three effects. So it's like a lot of things to hook up and know that they're going to work correctly. And I didn't get a sound check. Um, so I was sort of setting up while the last person was tearing down or while there was this other thing going on. And then I just kind of started playing. And that show came out. It was wild because I didn't, you know, there was only so much that I could even understand about what was going on. Like, mm-hmm. it was really all just happening, and I was reacting to it as it was happening. And it sounded really different from, you know, when I have, like, a really full sound check, and I'm really confident, and, yeah. like, oh, everything is totally set up, and it's working just great, you know? <laughs> like, it's just, it was a different, it was a different approach. I mean, was that scary? It sounds... <laughs> yeah, it was I mean... totally terrifying, but it worked out, you know? And it came out really, really differently from how some of my other shows have come out, and I played the next night at Deck Mantel, and it was, like, completely, completely different version of the show. There are people with me who saw both because there are a bunch of us who are you know here and there and they're just like well, it was completely different yeah I'm like yeah it was kind of the same show but kind of not like and so <laughs> that's I, improvisation <laughs> I think that keeps it interesting though like I have seen live sets that have been completely exactly the same as other previous live mm-hmm. shows from the from the same artist and for me the artists that have been most interesting are like Adam Team and Tobias for example oh, yeah, right. I saw them like seven times in a summer live every time and it was completely different every single mm-hmm. time and I think that's so incredible like yeah. how do you even yeah. I, yeah I think it's amazing I wish I could do that I can't do that <laughs> <laughs> going back to hardware uh I think as you said it can be quite unpredictable and even unreliable in terms of kind of doing what it's told. Yeah, no, sometimes the communication is not as good as you mm. want it to be, you know? Random things can happen. Yeah, so I mean, <laughs> is is the correcting the mistakes or dealing with the mistakes or dealing with the miscommunication something that you can also think of as improvisation? Yeah, for sure, because you're, de- you're, you're you know, it's situational. Like, every gig is situational, so you're, like, dealing with what's happening. And... You know, if one machine decides it's not going to work or decides it's going to have a little emotion attack, like, what am I going to do about that? (laughs) Well, maybe I'm going to figure out a creative way to, like, pull it out and power cycle it. Or maybe I'm just going to decide that maybe that sounds okay. And how am I going to deal with what's going on right now? (laughs) Is there a specific time you can think of that that happened? Yeah, I mean, I was playing it. It was maybe even the second or third live set I ever did. I played at Movement Festival, and I, um, which is at home in Detroit, so just a couple miles from my house. And at the time, I hadn't, I wasn't touring my live show yet, so I didn't have, I wasn't prepared for travel. So I was still using my studio gear, like big vintage things out, and it was raining that day. Here I had this like really old gear, and one piece just was doing whatever it wanted because it was a little <laughs> bit wet, and it didn't like the moisture, and it was just making some sound, and I'm like... Okay. All right. We're going <laughs> to... So you kept it on. Kept yeah, going. yeah. I mean, I just like, I got to deal with this. It kind of sounds cool. I don't know what's happening, but I like it. So mm. we're going to keep it and we're going to use it. <laughs> Actually, Suzanne Chiani, uh, we talked about her before the interview started, um, but I interviewed her for the second episode of this series and she told me that she actually loves these kind of unexpected, yeah. unpredictable moments because it can sometimes be really amazing and really usable for her right. set. I like not knowing what's going on all the time, actually. Mm. That's like my favorite zone to be in. <laughs> Would you say that using analog gear in general is an improvisation in itself? Like, 
we've kind of touched on this, but just in general, that act of like using machines instead of playing records, for example. Uh, I mean, not necessarily, because you can, I mean, you can be as like, you can be as preset as you want mm-hmm. on any of it, you know? I mean, as someone who's playing records, you can, you know, organize your crate front to back by what you want to play in, what order you want to play it in, mm-hmm. and know what all the BPM changes are, right? Or you can just, like, have a random bag of records and decide to play random things, you know? Mm-hmm. And the same thing with the machines. That's like, I could go in there and program all my changes and program right. all the structure and program all the songs, but then I'd be bored to death. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that good music production or performance requires that bit of spontaneity? <sighs> I mean, I think it's more fun that way because it's reactive, you know, it's situational. It's like if you're, if a DJ has a preset set, then it has nothing to do with that crowd or that moment or that environment. So, and I mean, that might come off fine if they're playing a bunch of the same festival over and over again or something. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know. I can't speak to that. That's not my zone. Right. But I mean, when you're not doing that, then you're in the moment, you know, you like, I can be in the moment and I can be in that place with the people that are there and like be having that conversation with my gear, whether it's being emotional or not. You once said, I enjoy adventure and discovery and not knowing exactly what's going to happen next. And I try to bring that feeling into the tracks. Can you elaborate a bit more on how you kind of bring that energy into your music? Yeah, so, you know, I was kind of saying earlier about how a lot of my tracks, I'm playing them out live a few times and maybe, you know, ditching them or maybe keeping them and trying them different ways. So it's like, on the album I just finished, there's a bunch of tracks in there that have come out of my live show from the last few years. And my process for making music is to um, do them as live jams, kind of. And then go back and fix a little bit and make it be exactly how I wanted. But I'm trying to get like the flow and the feeling of the tracks out of like, you know, my experience in performing them live. So I'm trying to bring some of that like live feeling into the production. So what do you mean by live jams? Like literally just sitting down and kind of Doing. Like I do what I do, like I do what I do for my live show, but in the studio. And instead of like, you know, playing, you know, however many tracks I'm playing in a live show, I'm just like focusing on that one. So I have my sequencer out and I'm playing the sequencer and like making the studio happen and recording it. <laughs> Does it always start from the same place or no. everything is different every time? <laughs> well, it can be, you know, it just, I mean, I get to a place where I think a song should be a certain way, you know, cause I've like listened to it a bunch of different ways or had different ideas about how to structure it. And they all start different. Like one might start with a baseline or one might start with a texture or I don't know. They all come out differently and it's not necessarily on purpose, but do you ever worry that you're going to run out of ideas? No, <laughs> <laughs> the universe is enormous. <laughs> can you give me an example of how spontaneity influences or impacts your work or your performance, I guess. It's about if I'm going to like include an extra piece or not include an extra piece. Am I even feeling this track right now? No, I'm going to like move into the next thing really fast. Oh, this moment feels really powerful to me. So I'm going to like manipulate this moment more and like have it be bigger or smaller mm. or like <laughs> more like decision making. Yeah. I guess. Right. Cause it's like inline decision making, mm-hmm. you know, like what am I going to do next? I don't know, but I do <laughs> because it's like, I feel what's happening. But I mean, did it take you a while to kind of get into that space of like, what am I going to do? I don't know, but actually you do know. Like, have you always known? No. It's taken me a while to get comfortable. I mean, when I first started playing live, I was, you know, there were times when like, oh, like, I, like my sequences fell out of sync and now I have to like stop start and, you know, these kinds of things. So it's like, and like awkward, like for me, the moments like that feel a little bit awkward or like break the flow a little bit. Something I've been working on for the last whatever, however many years I've been playing live for is like, you know, 
getting into a zone where like when things like that happen, I could be more food about recovering from them or, you know, making them work for me instead of making me feel like there's mistakes or like the, you know, the performance is off or something. So when did you start playing live? Uh, maybe 2012, like as myself, I, you know, I joined Ectomorph in like 1997 or something and started doing shows with BMG Mm -hmm. then, you know, but that's a different when you're collaborating with somebody or contributing part, you're not con- doing the whole show, so it's more of like a, you know, it's like a, it's like a fusion, it's a collaboration. Like I started playing solo in like 2012, I think. So then these kind of collaborations Maybe that you mentioned uh, with, <laughs> with uh, BMG, is that, I don't know, similar to this kind of jazz jam session type of vibe? Like, is it really like... I don't know, spontaneous and kind of you guys get it together is. and you just read each other. No, we do because we've had this musical relationship for 20 years. So we know each other very well and we know, you know, I know what he likes and doesn't like and he knows what I like and doesn't like. And it's actually really fun to jam with him on that level because I'm doing what I'm doing and he's doing it, he's doing it. We can look at each other and stop and understand, hey, this is something that we're going to keep or this is something we're going to move through. And it's like we have a dialogue. We have a really strong dialogue. And so when him and I are playing live together as ectomorph, like that it, it's a completely different thing from, you know, me doing Erica live. You know, I get to focus more on just a few things instead of worrying about the whole orchestration. It's like we have our jobs. So right. I can go like deeper into a particular tone when somebody else is handling, you know, half the programming and I'm only doing this mm. other half. So, you know, that's a big difference. So for me, it's like a little bit more psychedelic to do ectomorph live because I can kind of focus in on sound a little bit more specifically you know I have a little bit more time and space because I'm doing less of the jobs (laughs) did it take you guys a long time to develop this communication or was it there from the start you know it's 20 years of development (laughs) for sure (laughs) Uh, there's actually a great quote from BMG when he was talking about the no way back parties in Detroit he said no one talks to each other about what they're going to play but it flows so intuitively from one DJ to the next Mm -hmm. if this were a medium like rock or jazz we'd be a band right yeah, uh, totally, would you agree? Totally, I absolutely <laughs> agree with that. Uh, can you elaborate on this kind of... I mean, maybe you can just talk a bit about the No Way Back parties for people who don't know. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, at this point, the No Way Back parties are all residents. So it's all, you know, it's me, BMG, Mike Servito, Derek Placeco, Carlos Soufran, Patrick Russell, and then Brian Kasenik. Me and Brian and Mike are sort of the more recent additions. The other four guys are the original lineup of the first No Way Back party. And the party has evolved. I mean, every year it's been a different party. You know, sometimes guests have been invited to come in and play at it, you know, and it's grown and evolved as we've moved venues and as, you know, we've gone through 10 years of throwing this party. So, you know, what BMG is talking about in that quote specifically is how all those residents that I just named just really understand each other as human beings and as DJs. Do you think that that's something that's missing from parties in general? Like, a weird example, but uh, I'm not going to name the name of the DJ, but uh, (laughs) I was at a party last summer, and the vibe, it was like an outdoor party all day, kind of really chilled out music, and then uh, this certain DJ showed up at the end of the party and just came in with this really banging techno set, and I had waited for him all day to get there, and Mm -hmm. then he came and played this set that just really didn't match the rest of what was going right. on. So, I mean, do you think that that's something that's generally missing, you know, from these DJs that show up five minutes before the set, for example? Yeah, I mean, that's 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 tough because it's like, I mean, I feel that, like as a like especially as a DJ that 
I have to be sensitive to what the party is and what the environment is. And I can't like show up at a place and know what I'm going to play before I get there because I don't know what that party is and I don't know what the vibe is going to be like. People that are doing what you just said, I mean, that's almost like too bad for them. You know, they're missing like what's happening in that event or, you know. Would you say that that sense of freedom that we were talking about earlier is present at the No Way Back parties? Yeah, totally. No Way Back is about personal freedom, honestly. And it's about providing a place where you can actually be free and have your brain open up and like explore whatever it is you want to explore. And it's also a place where there's people and it's a communal experience. But at the same time, you are an individual there and you can go into the dark room and be alone in a group of people and have like a very singular experience. Where else have you found that sense of freedom in terms of electronic music, whether that's a party or a club or a label or an artist? Well, you know, that was in the very beginning when I started going to raves and warehouse parties in Detroit. That's what struck me so much about it. And that was a huge moment for me because when I was in high school and whatever, and I was like hearing like techno and whatever on the radio or in people's cars or even in like strip mall golf clubs and stuff, like it wasn't like... You know, it wasn't impactful like that because it was still like, you know, either not a sound system or not a club environment, but like going to a dark warehouse party and being in a dark room full of people with minimal lights and really loud enveloping music. I mean, that was a real influential moment for me was starting to go to those parties and being like, wow, it doesn't matter who I am or what I'm doing here. I can have I can enjoy this to its fullest. So how do you think we can, I don't know, kind of keep up that tradition of freedom or even make dance music more free i don't know but you know that's like a lot of i mean that's a big reason why we throw no way back is to like remind people that that's actually a thing that matters you know so much of so much of this culture exists in like club systems you know and i think that it's really like local clubs or local parties who's who are the ones that can like carry that on you know like i like efz where was that wait i can look it up for you because <laughs> <laughs> that place had like a uh, real strong leipzig leipzig yes ifc in leipzig <laughs> i mean i went there and i played there and it had that personal freedom feeling you know the knock digital festival had that personal feeling too because it's removed and everyone was just there and they're committed to being there labyrinth festival has that mm. feeling too so it's like i think that you know the promoters and venues that are like trying to cultivate like something bigger than just music because music is one part of it but there's the environment to consider and there's like the safety to consider and all these other things that sort of like add up it's like great sound great music safety freedom like a certain level of like amenities so that people can be contained because you know as soon as people have to like step too far outside of your environment to like go to the bathroom or go you know get a meal or whatever it like starts to break that so are you hopeful for the I don't know for the way that we're handling this music culture in terms of freedom well some people get get that aspect of the culture and are pushing that aspect of the culture right and that's that's amazing